If you have your Bible this morning, uh, I want to invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be continuing our series through this wonderful letter with a pretty lengthy section that Paul gives us describing his travels and how they tie back to the gospel that he preaches. We're especially glad to welcome you if you're here visiting with us for the first time today. I want to add my welcome to what Matt said earlier and just say thank you so much for choosing to come. And if, you, uh, if you're new to Christianity or maybe this is the first time you've come to a local church and weren't sure what to expect, I want you to know what you're, what you're going to get here for the next little bit of our time together. Each week we gather around God's Word. We believe that God has spoken to us in the Bible in a way that we can understand, in a way that helps us know who He is and what He's done and what we can enjoy from him if we'll trust in him. So to take God up on that offer, to engage with the word he's given to us at the center of every worship service each week, we try to unpack part of what the Bible says to us, to try to understand it on its terms, in its context, from its, its time and its place, but then also to understand how the message spoken then still applies today and speaks with insight and clarity into our, our context and what we're dealing with. So that's what we're going to do together for the next little bit of our time. And we like to do that by taking books of the Bible and going through them section by section. We're in Galatians this fall. Uh, And today we come to Galatians uh, chapter 1 verse 11. Now, I don't remember uh, when the first time I heard the term fake news was. Uh, I've heard it so much recently in the last few years that it seems like it's one I've always known. I don't remember when I first heard it. Surely... You're plugged into that concept as well as I am. It seems like we're hearing about it all the time. And even before I had the fake news concept to apply to it, I think it's not a stretch to say that, that public trust in government, in media, in the kind of institutions that used to get a lot of trust by default has declined precipitously in the last few decades. There's a lot of studies that can back this up, numbers that I've reviewed even this weekend to see how bad off it is. Something like one out of every, only one out of every three Americans trusts its government, however the surveyors defined that trust. One out of three. The numbers of, for, for trust in what you hear from the mainstream media are roughly the same as trust in government. A little better, but not by much. And I think there's a good reason for us to have trouble trusting what we hear. Because what we hear often conflicts. There's so much conflicting information out there that you've got to wonder where you're getting it from and what are the agendas behind it. And if, if you tell somebody you heard about something that happened, likely one of the first questions you're going to get asked is, where did you hear that from? And, where, and how you answer that question is going to have a whole bunch of connotations that comes with it for whether or not they're going to trust it. I think it's right to wonder where you get your information and why it's worth trusting. Sources really do matter. And that's especially true when the information you're getting doesn't match up. When you're getting information from different sources that's not the same. The passage that we're going to be looking at today, I mean, this is 2,000 years ago, but it's a very similar situation that Paul and other early Christians found themselves in. They were getting, by this point, different information about what it means to be a Christian. Different sources were peddling different gospels, if you will. And in the section we're going to look at today, Paul makes his case for his source, for why his source is the source you should trust. Now, I'm going to be honest. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago whenever I was giving you a big picture overview of what this letter is like. This section that we're covering today 
is an easy one to skip. <laughs> I mean, if you're just browsing over the letter and you haven't done, it, done it much work to study it yet, like I was when I first started getting into it, it does seem like a kind of aside from the letter, which has a real tight argument that it's making, a case that it's making for the gospel. And from, from chapter 1, verse 11 to chapter 2, verse 10, it's, it's like Paul just has a travel journal that he's reading to you. Here's where I went and when, and here's where I went next after that. And then after that, I went over here. The point that, he's, that his travel journal here is supposed to make is that Paul didn't get this gospel, his gospel, one he's preaching from any human. He got it from God. And I'll be honest, even when I recognize that that's the point he's trying to make, that it's not just a travel journal for entertainment's sake, but he's trying to show you where he got his gospel, I'll be honest that even then, even knowing that, it doesn't feel like this passage speaks directly to needs that I've been living with this week. I don't know what's weighed you down or stressed you out, but hearing where Paul's gospel came from doesn't immediately lift the burdens that are on my shoulders. And that's why I think it's important to remember that the Bible speaks to things that are beyond our horizon, calls us to recognize the importance of things that stretch beyond our pressing needs that would otherwise be the only thing we notice sometimes pushes deeper to help us see that our needs go further and run deeper than we often realize they do. And in this case, in the case of what we're going to be covering this morning, even though the specific examples Paul gives us, even though the twists and turns of his journey are so embedded in his time and his place, even though they, they're, they're tied back to a challenge to his authority that was specific to his time and isn't likely to be one we're facing, Along the way, Paul does point us to the core reasons for trusting the gospel message and the core reasons he identifies in this travel journal for why the Galatians should trust the gospel are the same reasons that should lead us to trust the gospel. You need to know where the message you depend your life for, for life upon, you need to know where that message comes from. You need to know why it's worth listening to in, in distinction from all the other options that you will have in your life. And that need, which is fundamental to you and your place in the world, is the need that this passage meets this morning. Now, I want to say a couple of things before I read it to help you get ready for what you're going to hear. One, we're going to talk about the gospel a lot in this passage. We've talked about it for the last two weeks. And just to be honest and straightforward... Paul still hasn't actually even defined what the gospel is yet by this point in the letter. And in the passage we're going to read this morning, he won't define what the gospel is. So I want to define it for you from what he's going to say later so that you know what we're talking about when Paul justifies where he got his gospel from and why you can trust it. The gospel that he's talking about gets hinted at in the, the opening of the letter where he refers to Jesus as one who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And it's a gospel that he develops most in chapters 2 through 4 of this letter. And this is basically the gist of it. Paul's gospel tells us that no one could overcome the guilt or the power of sin through obedience to the law. You will not overcome what you've already done and what you will be on your own strength. That's impossible. Because it's impossible, the God who made you and loves you sent his son, Jesus, to overcome sin from you. For you. 
And the only way to enjoy what Jesus did for you, the only way to to get in on the blessings of his forgiveness and his deliverance is faith, simply faith, identifying yourself with who he is and what he's done rather than anything else you might be proud of. What we get through faith in Jesus, Paul will tell us later, is more than just forgiveness in a clean slate. What we get when we identify with Jesus is Jesus' identity for our own. And Jesus is the Son of God. What you get through this gospel is not just a fresh start. You get adoption as the children of God who have the same affection and commitment that God has for his son Jesus. That affection, that commitment, along with protection and provision and mercy and grace is aimed at you through Jesus. That's the gospel that Paul is trying to justify in what we're going to look at this morning. I want you to know that. The next thing I want you to know is a little bit about how this passage is going to break down, then I'm going to read it to you. What you're going to see is in the first couple of verses we'll read, in chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, you're going to see the main claim or argument that Paul makes. He's going to say, pushing back against what other teachers probably challenged him on, is that his gospel is not a human gospel. It came from a revelation directly by God through Jesus. He got his gospel from the source. And then after he makes that claim, starting in verse 13, he's going to justify the claim. He's going to support it. He's going to tell you the things from his life that you need to know about if you want to be convinced of what he's trying to argue. So I want you to know that. Know the claim. This revelation didn't come from humans. It came straight from God through Jesus. And then know that the rest of the stuff that he says is all meant to support it. I'm going to walk you through it later. I don't want to begin by reading it. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in in, in honor of God's word as I pick up in chapter 1, verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the claim. Everything else supports it. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, what they saw that I had been in, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is God's word. You can be seated. I mentioned that I think the main theme, the main reason for this section in this letter is to convince us why we can trust the gospel. So what I want to do today is give you three reasons from this passage for trusting the gospel. Why should you trust the gospel? Reason number one, and the main theme in this section of the letter, is that you should trust the gospel because it comes from the resurrected Jesus. You should trust the gospel because it comes from the resurrected Jesus. That's the first main point, and I think it's just really straightforward. Paul's saying in these first couple of verses that we read, I didn't get this gospel from anybody else. It didn't, I didn't come up with it on my own. I got it from God through Jesus. Now, what I want to do is help you see how he makes this claim and supports it through all these details he gives us that come later. And then, and then what I want to do, after sort of flagging some of the most important details here, I want to step back for a second and help you make some sense of them. I want to summarize at the end why I think it's so important that Paul is telling us what he's telling us. So first, let's just make sure we see the right details in the, in the, um, the travel journey that Paul records for us here. So he said, I didn't get this gospel from anybody but God through Christ. That's it. And then the first thing he says to support that claim comes in verse 13. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism. He talks about the fact that he hated Christianity. He wasn't looking for a new religion. He tried to get rid of it. And he talks about the fact that he was so committed to his Judaism that everybody else was looking up to him. They saw his track record and envied it. They, they recognized that he was advancing in Judaism beyond his peers. The point here is that, that Paul didn't get this gospel after working with somebody who showed him a hole in his thinking or his experience, kind of persuaded him that what he had been trusting in just wasn't worth, couldn't carry the water that he was carrying in it. It wasn't that somebody put a good book in his hands and after a long period of reflection he finally realized there was more wisdom here than in what he had believed he hadn't carefully weighed a message somebody else put on his radar no no his encounter with Jesus came out of nowhere when he was perfectly content as he was his encounter with Jesus came on God's initiative he wasn't looking for anything and this encounter with Jesus changed him on the spot he tells us then that once I did 
encounter Jesus. I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Verse 16. Meaning, it's not like I had somebody else come fill in the gaps. I got the message I'm preaching to you straight from Jesus. He told me everything I needed to know. I did go up and see Peter later, he says in verse, in verse 18. Three years later, I went up to meet Cephas, is another name for Peter, one of the main apostles who was leading the church at this time. Of course, I wanted to get to know him, it's as if Paul is saying, but, but he didn't give me my message. I had it for three years before that. And when I was there in Jerusalem, he says, the only other apostle I even met was James. The rest of them don't even, didn't even know who I was at the time. Paul's making this claim because he wants you to know that the only thing that can convince a man like him to believe a message like his is coming face to face with a dead man who'd come back to life again. His gospel came straight from the resurrected Jesus. I want to read to you a section from Acts that Paul's alluding to here. In Acts chapter 9, we get the story behind what Paul's saying here in his letter. We're told that Saul, as, as he was called at the time, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's how Christians were referred to, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he goes up to the high priest to get the authority that he needs to basically arrest on the spot anyone who's trusting in Jesus. Now, as he went on his way, He approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. This is the encounter, the first of several between Paul and Jesus where Jesus gives Paul the message that he then sends Paul to proclaim among people who were not Jewish. For Paul, you must know that the gospel gets its authority not from any human, but from the God who gave it through his son Jesus, who was dead and is now alive. Why? Why is that so important for you to know? I want to chew on that question for a minute. I think it's important to know two things. Two reasons that it's so important for you to know that this gospel came from straight from the resurrected Jesus. The first one has to do with the authority of the gospel, and the second one has to do with the credibility of the gospel. If this gospel came straight from a man who was dead but is now alive, then it comes with an authority that only such a person could give it. The resurrection of Jesus confirms that Jesus has the right to offer a good news in the first place. He has the authority to define what the offer is, and he stands behind everything that's in the offer. Apart from that, you shouldn't trust it. If you're not getting it from the one who has the authority to define what it is and stand behind all of its promises, you shouldn't trust it. For example, this week I was uh, talking to a buddy of mine who works in the music business and was, was uh, offering to maybe hook me up to join him for some tickets to a backstage show at a big show that's coming to town. And, uh, you know, he has the authority to offer me that because he's a big part of their operation. He works with the band. He, 
He was part of pulling off everything that goes into such a show. He can stand behind an offer. He can tell me what the offer is. He'll tell me what the experience is like and what I, what I should expect and where I should go if I want to get the right passes to get where I need to be. He has authority because he's an insider to it all. Now, if somebody posted a similar offer on Craigslist, say anonymously with a strange number, and they offered me a backstage pass to a big show and even told me where to go and when to show up. Well, if it's come from Craigslist, from who knows who, I'm probably just not even going to waste the money on an Uber to go downtown and try it out. I mean, I'm just not going to trust that source. It matters that someone who's attached to the thing being offered, who can stand behind what's being offered, tells me exactly what's being offered. No one else has that authority. And Paul's saying the same thing here about his gospel. Jesus is an insider to what this gospel offers. He provided by his own death on the cross and his resurrection to new life, he provided everything that was necessary to make good on its promise. And if you meet him, you know you meet someone who has an authority you don't have, that whatever he tells you about this offer is what is, and you don't have the authority to change it. So friends, what that means for you is, when you're evaluating the gospel that, we're gonna, that, we, that I've mentioned already today and that we'll be talking about a lot more in weeks to come, when you're evaluating it and whether to trust it, I want to encourage you not to ask how it lands on you or whether it resonates with you or whether it sounds good to you. The only thing you need to ask is, has this gospel come from a resurrected dead man who stands behind everything that it offers? Speaking of which, how could you know if this gospel really did come from a resurrected dead man who stands behind everything that it offers? That's the second reason this claim is so important. The first reason I gave you was that it it speaks to the authority behind this gospel, why Paul won't let anyone change it, and why he's so confident if you trust it, Jesus will be there for you stands behind the authority of it. But it also stands, the, the, the fact that it comes from the resurrected Jesus speaks to the credibility of it as well. Maybe you're thinking, sure, this sounds good enough on paper, but why believe Jesus is actually risen? That's a fair question. Much less that a risen Jesus met with Paul and gave him this message. That would be a convenient thing for Paul to, to claim happened at this point in his life. That's, that's what you call a trump card in an argument, right? Jesus told me. Why should you believe that he actually did meet with Jesus in the way that his story suggests? I think it's a fair question. I think it's the path to some of the most important and compelling evidence I know of for the truthfulness of Christianity. It's the question you should be asking. How can I know if Jesus really did rise from the dead and meet with Paul? I think this question can lead you into some of the best reasons for trusting Christianity overall. Let me just give you a couple of examples, just real quick. One thing to notice that matters here is Paul's transformation. What he gave up on a dime. Paul had a lot going for him. He was advancing quickly in a career that was a path to a decent life in ancient Roman Judea. He, he loved where he was based on his own description. And yet, without any period of reflection, 
without any ongoing, long-standing struggle. Paul just gives it all up. Why would he do that? Pushing this further, think about the transformation. Think about the fact that, that what he gave it all up for at the heart of his transformation wasn't just an ideal that became sweet to him, that sort of persuaded him that this was a better way to understand the world or a better way to live than what he had before. What, he, what, he transform, what transformed him was specifically the belief that Jesus had really died and now was really alive. Specifically a message he says he got out of nowhere from that very formerly dead, now living man. His transformation happened directly connected to the core thing he's claiming here. Now how could that transformation happen for him if he hadn't actually seen what he said he was seeing? That's one thing. Think about his transformation. Think also about his sacrifice. Why would anyone drop everything, change course, and then ultimately even die for a claim that he'd met a resurrected Jesus who gave him his message? Do you realize that the earliest leaders in the church, almost all of them died for their faith? That's, that's something that historians, wide range of them, agree about. Do you realize that what they died for was specifically their belief that Jesus was alive again and that they had seen him? Now, if that's a hoax, why would they take it that far? What could they possibly stand to gain if what they wanted was to use this claim to build a kingdom for themselves here on earth where they could have power and influence over others? They were total failures. You would think they would have recognized that before, the, before, they, before, they, were, before they were killed, but they didn't. In fact, they went gladly to their death precisely because they said, I saw a resurrected Jesus, so this death that you're threatening with me with, I, I'm not scared of it. That's what they said. Now, claims like those, like claims to be a Messiah, they were not unusual at the time. It wasn't like this was their first opportunity to rally behind somebody who said he could bring in a new world. They were common. One of the most uh, interesting books that I know of about the resurrection, the most compelling case for its truthfulness, is written by a guy named N.T. Wright. And he talks in one part of this book about, about the fact that these claims to be a Messiah were common in ancient, the ancient Jewish world. But he says, this is a quote from his book, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. So in, in the cases that a Messiah was killed, which was common, a would-be Messiah getting killed, not one case do we hear that the followers claimed their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better than to do that, Wright says. Resurrection wasn't a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options, Wright says. Give up their revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option. Unless, of course, he was. I think the story that Paul is relating here speaks to why you can trust this gospel because it came from a man who was dead but is now alive and whose resurrection gives you the credibility you need to believe and whose resurrection gives you the, the, the sense of authority that you can trust to know that the offers the gospel makes will be there for you too if you claim them. That's the first reason that you can trust the gospel. It comes straight from Jesus. 
Now, in chapter 2 of this letter, Paul takes us into a slightly different direction. He's still talking about why you can trust the gospel, but here he takes us into another, a, a, a complementary but very different reason to trust the gospel. So up to this point, one of the main things he's been trying to make sure we get is that he didn't get this gospel from anybody else except Jesus. So I don't depend on anybody out there for my authority and credibility to represent this message to you. It came straight to me. He's independent. That's why he talks about the fact that he didn't consult with anybody after he got it. He didn't go straight up to Jerusalem to make sure that Peter filled in all the gaps. He just went and started preaching it right away because that's what Jesus told him to do. Now, in this section, he shifts to talking about other people. To what happened when he took his gospel up to Jerusalem where the rest of the apostles lived. And the apostles that we're going to talk about here for a minute, the apostles were the other group of people who had lived with Jesus when he lived on earth, who had listened to him teaching, describing who he was and what he was going to do, who had watched him die and then had been with him for a time after he had risen from the grave. These apostles, a very defined group of people, were given the job by Jesus of teaching others what he had said, what he had done, and defining for the church what their main beliefs would be and how they would grow. The apostles had a unique authority in the life of the church that was tied back to their knowledge of Jesus, their experience of him, and to the role Jesus gave them to play in the church. So Paul goes up to Jerusalem, taking the gospel he'd gotten from Jesus to the apostles who had also known and heard from Jesus. The reason he's shifting to talking about others is that even though these others are not the main reason you should trust his gospel, they do help you to trust it. You should trust the gospel not just because it came from the resurrected Jesus, but because it's affirmed by all the apostles. I want to show you how this works. Look closely at how the story plays out. Paul goes up to Jerusalem because of a revelation from God, he says. Verse 2. God told him to go up and to set before the other apostles the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, verse 2. He says that the reason that he goes up there to set his gospel in front of them is so that he would know he wasn't running or had not run in vain. Initially, that's a bit of a trip-up moment for me. I'm thinking, what? I mean, he seems so confident. It seems like the whole point of the first chapter was that he knew without anybody else telling him that he had the true gospel because Jesus gave it to him. I think we should remember that and know that he's not worried about his gospel being wrong right here. That wouldn't make sense out of what he just said. What is he worried about? What would it mean for him to run in vain? And the best explanation I've seen for that is that that what he's afraid of is not that he's been wrong all along, but that he might lose the fruit that he'd seen in his ministry to the Gentiles. See, his role was to take the gospel to places that did not have a predominantly Jewish community. He knows there's a faction within Jewish Christianity teaching, as as one person put it, that though not all Jews are Christians, all Christians must become Jews. That to benefit from Jesus, you had to go all in with Moses too. And Paul knows that if that message keeps growing, if that message keeps gaining power, well, it could alienate the people he's worked so hard to offer the free gift of the gospel. He's been spending 14 years 
taking the gospel to Gentiles, telling them you don't have to do anything but believe in Jesus. You don't have to change anything about your ethnic background except anything Jesus has, anything inconsistent with what Jesus teaches you. You do not need the law of Moses to benefit from Jesus. He's been telling them that everywhere he goes. He knows that's what he's told them. If the apostles disagree with him, then he knows that could, that could alienate these people that he's worked so hard to reach. That's what he's worried about. It matters that he takes Titus with him. He mentions that in verse 1, taking Titus along with me to Jerusalem and comes back to Titus in verse 3. This is really important. See, Titus was one of his Gentile converts. He had become a Christian by trusting in the gospel that Paul had taught him. And now Paul's using him as a kind of test case for one of the most important moments in the history of Christianity. Because Paul had told him, when Titus became a Christian, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't now have to enter into the life defined by the law of Moses. You trust in Jesus, and Jesus is enough. That's what he told Titus. So now he comes to the other apostles in Jerusalem, and he brings Titus with him, and he puts Titus in front of them, and he lays his gospel in front of them, right here with this test case, to see what will they do with Titus. I think it's important to try to empathize with the magnitude of this moment in the history of the church. The stakes riding on their response to this case. What would they do? These other apostles whose Christianity had been lived out in the heart of Judaism. Well, verse 3 tells us first what they didn't do. Even Titus, Paul says, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. They didn't do that. They didn't yield, he says, verse 5, to the false brothers who slipped in trying to rob us of our slavery. These are the brothers who were teaching you had to, you had to go all in with Moses if you want to benefit from Jesus. These apostles stood with me on that. We did not yield to those who taught the law. And then he says, verse 6, they didn't add anything to my message. They didn't treat my message as if I were halfway there and I needed to clean it up or, or, or top it off a little bit with, with extra rules. They didn't add anything. In fact, verse 9 says, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. And do you see what's happening here? In all of these examples, Paul's saying, they had a chance to side with those who would add to Jesus. I put Titus right in front of them with my gospel. And they stood with me. Why should you trust the gospel? Paul's saying you should trust the gospel because it's affirmed by all of the apostles. And friends, that's what the apostles were there for. Revelations like the one Paul says he got from Jesus, those aren't basic Christianity. You should not expect a revelation like that. There's a reason that we should be suspicious of any kind of word from the Lord that a person claims to have received directly. These kinds of revelations are what defines an apostle. And there were only 12 of those. What Paul's saying happened to him, what the other apostles experienced in Jesus' earthly life, these things are what set the apostles apart and they're the reason 
that the apostles are so important to all of us. Jesus decided he would talk to and reveal himself to select men whom he gave a special job. Protect or preserve the gospel for them. I love that language. The language that comes out in in verse 5. We didn't yield. Imagine the apostles standing together, not yielding in submission, even for a moment. Why? This moment was bigger than Titus. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He was writing to the Galatians, but he had you in mind. You, all of you. The gospel was preserved through these men, given that job. Why should you trust the gospel? Well, if one person claims a revelation from Jesus then I think you'd be forgiven for doubting it, even if his life was changed and even if he was willing to die. There's some of the evidence I mentioned earlier for why I trust the resurrection. If it was just the one person, it wouldn't be nearly so strong because people get delusional. That happens. Even now, you could read about claims about people who think that they're some sort of Messiah and are even willing to face serious consequences and sacrifices for their belief that they are. And those kind of Delusions can come from all sorts of places. If it was just Paul, you'd have good reason for doubting him. But God preserves the gospel through, for all of us through the apostles, through a group of people who all encountered the risen Jesus and got from him the content of their gospel. So what Paul has said so far is, you should only trust the gospel if it comes from a resurrected Jesus, from a man who died and then came back to life to tell you what that gospel is. That's the only way, reason, that's the, the foundation for your trust in this gospel. But, doesn't it help to know that there was more than one person who received that same message from that Messiah? What happens here on this fateful day in Jerusalem is that all the apostles line up and say, yep, that's what I heard from Jesus. How about you? Yep, that's what I heard from Jesus. And you? Yes, that's what I heard from Jesus. And on down the line, complete agreement. The witness of the apostles, friends, is core not just to our trust in the gospel, but to the whole Bible. I mean, we, we could, I'm tempted for us to just push this further and spend more time here because it's such an interesting story. But if you look into how the core message of the gospel gets hammered out in the early life of the church and protected and represented in things like the Apostles' Creed and even in the Bible that we have today and the specific books that made it into this Bible. What you'll find is a process that was guided as much as anything else by one principle. What would the apostles say? What did they say? Was this book written by one or by someone who was under their authority and care and training? Does this fit with what we got from all the apostles? And friends, that's what Jesus intended for them all along. In his own words to his followers the night before he died, he said, John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you, talking to the disciples, all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Their job, guided by the Spirit, was to listen to Jesus and tell us what he said. That's why you should trust this gospel. Now I want to finish off here with one encouragement to you. It's a third reason to trust the gospel that's really just an implication of what we've already talked about. In another letter, Paul describes the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Here, 
through his story of his conversion, I think Paul would have you know that he means everyone. You should trust this gospel because Paul's own life story shows that this gospel can save anyone, even Paul, even me and you. I love the way he describes his conversion in verses 15 and 16. I mean, he's in the middle of a sentence that's main point is, I didn't consult anyone. And in the middle of this sentence that's really just trying to say, I didn't consult anyone, he describes the gospel in incredible beauty. And it's all about God who decided he wanted to save him. When he who had set me apart before I was born. Why? Because he saw how amazing Paul would be? No. When he called me by his grace. That's the only reason. Why? Because he saw how intelligent and insightful I would be, how useful, how quick, I would, how quick a study I would be. No. When he chose to reveal his son to me, like bam, blindness to sight all at once. Not because Paul had some sort of special insight, some sort of intelligence that no one else could match. It's all about God's grace. And the reason Paul tells his story like this, I think comes out a lot clearer in 1 Timothy 1. He says in 1 Timothy 1, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, Christ our Lord judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. The saying is trustworthy, Paul writes, and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. I, Paul, insolent, blasphemer, persecutor, I received mercy that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's you. What should we take from Paul's story? His conversion is an example of the trustworthy power of the gospel. He worked as hard as he worked to protect the gospel from distortion, from addition, from the slavery of new and extra expectations because he wanted the Gentiles. He wanted the Galatians. He wanted you to know God's grace through Jesus and only that grace is enough to save anybody from everywhere. If the gospel depends only on Jesus and nothing else, then even a violent enemy can be reconciled and made new. A gospel that doesn't depend on anybody else's works, that's a gospel that can save anybody no matter what. Now, I'm not saying to you that you should expect a Damascus Road kind of experience. I haven't had one of those, and most of us won't know this sort of in-the-moment transformation. But friends, what I am saying is this. You are not further from God's grace than Paul was. You are not outside the reach of his love. And you can trust the gospel because Paul is living proof that it can save anyone, even me and you. Father, give us the grace to believe. We need your grace not just to stand behind this offer, but to give us eyes to see it, hearts to love it like you gave to Paul. I pray that for every person in this room, for your name's sake.